man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. text this morning. I mean, let's, let's be honest about it. There are times when we feel like God's love has given up on us. I mean, intellectually, we know the right answer to that question when we take the entrance exam to get into heaven and the multiple choice is, does God's love ever give up on you? Yes, no, all of the above. We know yes or, or no. His, his, his love never gives up on us. Uh, we, we know the answer intellectually. But we hit spots in our lives where it seems as though the love of God is somewhere else. And where we are seems to be an empty wasteland and devoid of the presence of God. It's not an experience that is alien to the Scripture. Um, we encounter all kinds of people who are hitting those moments where it seems as though the distance of God is just so vast that he's absent. Um, I got to thinking about Mary and Martha, the uh, two sisters, um, very, very dear friends of Jesus. They had their brother, whom they loved, obviously, but the Scripture says that Jesus loved him too. His name was Lazarus. And one day, Lazarus got sick. I mean, really sick. I mean, we are very worried about Lazarus sick. And so Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. I mean, why not? After all, he's your very good friend. After all, he loves your brother. You know these things. On top of that, he kind of like has really great ability to bring people out of sickness and, and out of, of very trying and, 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 and threatening situations physically. So you send for Jesus. Dear Jesus, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Won't you come? And then you start to wait. And at night, Mary, have you heard from Jesus? No, Martha. But I'm sure he'll be here tomorrow. You wake up the next morning and know Jesus. You start to do the calculation in your head and you realize that there's been time for the message to get there. And now there's been time for the message to get back or the, with Jesus. I mean, where is he? Lazarus is sicker today than he was yesterday. And he keeps declining during the day. Constantly, you're looking down the road. Has Jesus come yet? No, haven't seen him. Lazarus sicker. Where's Jesus? I don't know, I haven't seen him. And then as you weep beside his bed, your brother Lazarus dies. And through your tears, you ask, 
is Jesus here yet? No, we haven't seen him. He's not here. And there is the grief and the sorrow and the heartache that your brother is gone. And there's the deeper sorrow and heartache and confusion and pain that it seems like Jesus didn't care. It just didn't matter to him. Oh, in your head, you're leaping forward verses. You know how this thing ends. But you've got to put yourself in the little spaces between the verses. Because those spaces don't just fly by in the life of Mary and Martha. These are hours. This is days in which you are grieving for the loss of your brother. And you're grieving because Jesus wasn't there. And you're confused. And you're broken. Because it looked like he didn't care. What do you pray? I mean, what, what do you pray? You already sent your prayer. Dear Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Please come. You already prayed and nothing, nothing came back. And it's in those moments that you really think hard about not just the theology of God, but you really think hard about whether or not you trust this and whether you can really live this way because the pain is so great. Some of you have been there. Some of you have watched a loved one die. And you asked, is Jesus there? Where was he? Some of you have arms that will always be empty. Will always be empty. And you ask, did Jesus care at all about this? Some of you have been to places, maybe you're there now, where grief's cousin depression has taken up permanent residence in your life. And the weight, like a physical weight of sorrow, is constantly on your shoulders. And you put up a brave front, and you smile and sing the songs. And deep down, when the choir sings, He is there, You're thinking to yourself, but I don't see it, and I don't get it. In those moments when it seems as though life has caved in on you and just presses in from every side, what do you pray? David prayed this prayer. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Lord, you've figured me out. Lord, you you know how I react to things. You've searched me. You, You know me perfectly. You know what's going on in my life right now. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. 
Lord, you know what I'm thinking here? Lord, I can't even put this prayer into words because words are failing me. All I have is a swirling emotion, and it's, and it's so gripping that when I try to give it words, they, they choke in my throat. And Lord, before I can pray and put it into words, you already know the thoughts. You see, sometimes we have the idea that in order to pray, we have to tell God what's happening. Though he didn't know that we had to inform God how we were feeling as though he didn't know. That we have to inform God what the problem is, who the problem people are, what the dynamics are. In other words, we have to have the problem figured out and bring it to, to God in a nice, neatly packaged presentation, PowerPoint, the whole thing. God, here's the problem. Slide, next slide, please. And in point of fact, he already knows. And we don't even have the words. He knows what's going on in our heads. He knows what's going on inside of us. He's already got it nailed. Lord, you know my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down are acquainted with all your ways, all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. You know, we've been talking about the five love languages, or we just finished a class on that. And one of the love languages is touch. And uh, the idea of that is that some people just feel loved when you put a hand on their shoulder or just reach out and rub their back. And uh, David says... God, you know my love language is touch. I just need to know your hand on me. I know when your hand is there, you're there. When I, if I can just feel the, the, the smallest pressure of your touch on my shoulder, Lord, then I've got a sense that, you, that you're hemming me in. You're, you're in front of me, you're behind me, you're to either side of me. You get that? Lord, you, you know where I am in all this. And so he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Lord, you've got things going on in the thought process that I can't even imagine. If I were to bring you my presentation in words, it would be like a a, a first grader's book report. I mean, it, it would be cute, might have one or two things right, but... Basically, it wouldn't be, you know, exactly everything that was in the book. But, Lord, you, you know all this. And, and that kind of knowledge for me, Lord, is, is just too wonderful. I, I can't even compass it. I can't even figure it out. You know, if you wanted to put a big theological word to this, the, the word would be omniscience. You know, omni, science, God knows everything. Yes, I know God knows everything. But look, when we say that God is omniscient, that God knows everything, it doesn't mean that he's a really good contestant on Jeopardy. 
You know, it doesn't mean that he's got like, like tons of stuff memorized or speaks fluently several languages. It, it isn't that he, he can pass the exams in, 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 you know, the final exam in your calculus class. When we say that God knows everything, we are saying God intimately is aware of each and every dynamic, its relationship, how it works out, how it fits in, what's going on, how it's going to have a ramification in the, in the future, what the past has been. God knows all of that. He already knows. See, a lot of times when we're really, uh, you know, put back on our heels, when, when, when we're feeling awfully small in life and, and things are getting us down, a lot of times it's because we have a field of vision that extends out on a good day maybe a few decades. Maybe we can look out 20, 30 years. Maybe we can look out 40 years. You know, we do our planning, retirement planning, or, or planning for college for the, for the kids, or, or career planning, you know, those kinds of things. And on a really good day, that might stretch out 30, 40 years. God, when he makes plans for us, kind of like extends his vision out to all eternity. And not only that, as we're going through things in life, we really don't know how we're responding to things buried in the past. We, you know, you know, there's something called the subconscious. You, know, you never really forget anything, but you forget everything. You know, it's still rolling around in your head, having an impact on your life, and you don't really know why, so you get ambushed. get ambushed by anger, or you get ambushed by sorrow, or you get ambushed by fear. And all the therapy in the world can't go deep enough to dig down to where these things happen that planted that in your brain. When we say God knows everything, he knows what's buried down in your brain. He knows not just what you're thinking consciously, he knows the process that's rolling around in your head all the time. And so when you find yourself just gripped, for example, just gripped by the overwhelming emotion of sadness that is depression, and you think, where did this come from? God already knows. You don't have to go to the other side of the ocean to say he's there you just you just know he's there right where you are so uh, that's the opening thing god knows where our lives are he knows the plan jeremiah says i know uh, the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare not for evil to give you a future and a hope god says i know what i'm doing in your life and where you're comparing your life to somebody else's life, where you're, you're saying things like, well, Lord, his family's intact. Why can't mine be intact? You know, she's doing well in her marriage. Why can't I do well in my marriage? Now, he seems to be getting ahead in his job. Why can't I just have a little bit of get ahead in my job? You know, and we start comparing ourselves to all these other people around us. And God is free from comparing us to others because he fits us into the plan for his glory in a perfect fashion. We may not understand it now, but God knows. He already knows. And where we are and how he's leading us is a perfect direction and a perfect plan. Your temptation is to ask somebody to explain it to you. Your temptation is to ask the preacher to explain it to you. He doesn't know any more than you do. And so David prays. He says, Lord, you've searched me. You know me. You've you've got me pretty much pegged. 
you know everything about my mind, you know the thoughts that are going on inside of my head even before I think them. I can't, can't even imagine what that means. And where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I go from your spirit, David prayed. Now, um, you can take that in a lot of different ways. One of them is, uh, Lord, I really want to get away from you. Uh, I'm not too keen on you right now. Um, I, just, I just need some me time, Lord. And so uh, I, I've got to get away from you. Where am I going to go to get away from your spirit? Where, where's the place where God is not? The other way to read that is, you know, as life just takes me along, and this is probably closer to the truth in our lives, and we're just being sort of uh, uh, rushed along by the stream, by the river uh, that, that, that we call this life, and, and, and we're just rolling down the, rep, the, the river and the rapids are out ahead and we're worried about all those kinds of things. And we're thinking, Lord, are you up there? Well, wait a minute. Where will I go to get away from his spirit? Let's list all the places in the universe where God is absent. We just did. There are none. And so uh, David says, where shall I go to get away from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? How, you can't get away from him. If I ascend to heaven, you were there. Well, of course he's there. Of course, heaven there is the heights of, of heaven, but I don't think we're far off to think about the fact, well, of course heaven's there. You know, we get up to the heights of life, the very best parts of life, and, and things are rolling well, and it's doing really fine, and we look around, and sure enough, he is there. But if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol was the, the place, the realm of the dead, the pit, the darkness. It, 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 it was a not good place to be. And David says, if I get there and that's where I'm domiciled, and I look around, sure enough, Lord, you're there too. Doesn't matter where the government cuts your orders and sends you to the next duty station. Some of you are identifying with this. Doesn't matter that, that uh, your children are crying and making you feel like a heel because they have to be taken out of their school and, and taken to some place and they have to leave all their friends. Went to four different high schools, okay? When you get there, God is there. He's already there. Not only is he there, he was there before you got there. He was there knowing that you would get there. You, you get the point. It says, even if I go to what I think is the worst assignment possible, you're going to be there. You will be there. I can't get away from you. If I go to Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the wings of the morning, the sun, I think, comes up in the east, doesn't it? Comes up in the east, doesn't it? And, uh, uh, you know, if you lived in the Holy Land in Palestine, you would look to the east and it would just be land, land, land out that way. So if I take wings of flight and I go to where the morning is, or if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, if you look west, you run into the Mediterranean and there's just nothing but water, water, water. So he says, look from, from one end of the, of, uh, of the universe to the other. Wherever I go, if it's morning, if it's the end of the sea, what does he say? And even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Think about Mary and Martha. We left them stuck between the verses. You remember that. And their brother is dead, and Jesus isn't there. Finally, the word comes. 
Mary, Martha, Jesus is coming up the lane. Thank you. No, he's, he's coming. I guess I better go out to see him. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you'd only cared, my brother would not have died. Lord, if only you had responded to my prayer, my brother would not have died. Okay, we get all the theology that goes on in those verses in John. But look, there's a very real human emotion. There's a, there's a part of these, these ladies that, that say, Jesus, you left us in the lurch. And you weren't there. Because if you'd been there, my brother wouldn't have died. You ever say that or pray that? Feel that? Experience that? Lord, I don't get this thing because I'm trusting you and it's falling apart all around me. But Jesus comes to us inevitably. Jesus was already there, and I don't just mean that in sort of a theological way. He was already there in his heart. He, he did love Lazarus. He loved these ladies. And uh, his, his delay in getting there was because he knew the best timing, and, he, and, and, and he, was, he was just working that out. They couldn't see it at the time. Yes, Jesus, we know that there is a resurrection, that someday the dead are raised. We know that. <laughs> and that's where Jesus said, you know... Uh, I just happen to be the resurrection and the life. I'm, I'm, I am the resurrection. And, uh, but but they, they couldn't quite fathom that. If you want to put a, a big word to that, that's the uh, omnipresence, the omnipresence of God. That's the way I like to say it. God is everywhere. just doesn't, doesn't mean that he's just sort of uh, spooking everybody everywhere. It means that he is actively, vitally, lovingly, graciously, mercifully engaged in every life, in every place, in every venue, everywhere you go, he is there. Absolutely there. I think we're to verse 11. And so if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. If you wanted a biblical definition of depression, that would be it. That would be it. That I've got lights going on, the sun's out, it's bright and it's beaming, but look, to me, it's all darkness. Surely if I cover myself with darkness, so even in the daytime, it's darkness. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, you, you just go through life, and every step along the way is an effort. And it's like you keep running into things that make you sadder and sadder. It's like a, a, a grieving that, that you can't even tell why it's there, but it's there and it won't go away. It's, a, it's, it's the weight of depression falling upon you. And, and David says, even when I experience that, even when the grief is overwhelming, even when it, it, is, it, it, it is, is just sort of migrated from grief into depression into a constant debilitating sadness so that even the lights have gone out and there's no light at all. Even the darkness is not dark to you. In other words, the depression might destroy you. It can't destroy Jesus. And it can't frustrate his purposes. It's not like it dims his vision. It's not like he can't see as well in the darkness of depression because even the darkness is light 
to him. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. So you're there and you're grieving. You're you're at that point in life where, where things just aren't working out. Where's Jesus? He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And he is present. He really is there. He's present. David then prayed in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Uh, We're not going to dwell on this this morning, but we must see the sanctity of every human life in this verse, that we are created by God, and God's creative act in our lives doesn't happen when we are born. It happens as he creates us in our mother's womb, and that from the very beginning moments, God is vitally invested in your life. From the very beginning moments, before you had a heart to start beating, God was at work in your life for his glory. Before you even got started with that little nervous system that doesn't quite work right until about nine months, 12 months after, uh, after birth, uh, you know, even, even before... Uh, all those little baby things you started to kick and even before that God loved you okay you formed my inward hearts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I'm not an accident Lord it's not as though you're looking at me looking at my body and saying look what the cat drug in you know, it's not as though you're looking at me, Lord, and saying, well, I botched that one. No, you're, the, the person that you are is vitally important to God. And however that has come out and that, however that's worked out, God is still at work and invested in that. And his concern for you predates you. Okay, I'll put it that way. And uh, in my mother's womb... You're doing this. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself, David. He says, you know, here I am, Lord, and you made me in my mother's womb, and I'm wonderfully and I'm fearfully made. Wow, Lord, your works are wonderful. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Father, you have a perfect will for me, and the power that brought me into existence is the power that will lead me through life. You want the big word for that? It's omnipotence, omnipotent. God has all-powerful. And that doesn't mean that he's just like a super guy and a member of the Justice League, and that uh, he can uh, uh, do amazing tricks, uh, what it means is that whatever he designs and whatever he wills will take place. And you cannot frustrate the purposes of God. You can try for a season, it looks like it, but ultimately all creation will sing his glory. When Jesus comes again, 
You know, every knee is going to bow and every tongue really is going to confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. When the trumpet sounds and uh, the Lord descends and the sky is rolled back like a scroll and all those things, those who are dead, those who are asleep in Christ will be raised first and then we who are alive at that time will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we always be with the Lord. Period. End of report. I know that period thing doesn't have much credence these days, but when God says it, it it really is true. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. There's there's no way you're going to be be outside of, 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 of God's power and ability to work in your life. And so when you're, you're in those moments and you're absolutely grieving, you know, God comes into your life. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Mary and Martha looked at Jesus and they said, yeah, I know, I know there's a power of God. I know that there is a resurrection. And it's a really nice concept. Jesus said it's no concept. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ. Resurrection and life. So Jesus went to the tomb went to the tomb where they had buried Lazarus, his friend, whom he loved. And all the people were were crying and wailing and grieving. Some would say because Jesus saw the sorrow in their hearts and he knew it was unnecessary. I think he actually looked at the tomb of his friend Lazarus the way you and I look at a grave of a loved one. And the scripture says, Jesus wept. And those tears of Christ baptized our grief and our sorrow into the will of God. Jesus wept. Then he said, okay, roll away the stone. Lord, we can't do that. Why not? Well, he's been there, you know, like a while, uh, three days or so. And uh, uh, I learned this in the King James, and it says, Lord, by now he stinketh. And uh, Jesus said, you roll it back. Then he called out, Lazarus, come forth. He had to say, Lazarus, come forth, because if all he said was come forth, (laughs) like the the whole planet would have been. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. And out comes Lazarus from the grave, the friend of Jesus, a living sermon that God is not done with you. Even if you're in the middle of the deepest grief of your life, God's power is still real. And God's plans cannot be frustrated. And though death seems very, very big, the power of the resurrection is bigger by eternity still. And so um, Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the dead. And it, it, you know, I, I just see that in what, what David is praying here. He says, look, you, you, you put me together. You formed me in the womb. If you can do that, Lord, I guess it's child's play to keep me going here on earth and in this life and keep me rolling. God, I think your creative power is still working. It's still good. So he says, you know, the, you, you formed me in my inward part. 
How precious, I'm verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. I mean, that, I, I, I finally come to, come to consciousness. I, I'm aware, and there you are all the time. Lord, you're there. I'm, I'm still with you. That's why this, this, the, the promise of the anthem that was sung a moment ago, and that's in all the music we've been singing this morning, by faithfully following and, and the Lord working in our lives, you know, it's not just an idea, it's a reality. And, and it's never more real than, than when you're in the middle of those times when you can't see God and can't feel God. He is still all-knowing. He is still all-powerful. And he's still all-present in your life. And so David cries out to him. Now, the next verses coming, uh, and I'll, I'll just run through these, verses 19 through 22, I kinda, they, they're kind of jarring, all right? Because so far it's been a really beautiful song, hasn't it? Uh, you know, Lord, uh, you, you know me, you know my thoughts. And Lord, wherever I go, you are there. And Lord, you form me in the womb. And this is wonderful. Your thoughts are too great for me. Verse, 17, uh, verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malice, malicious intent. Your enemies, take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them mine enemies. That just doesn't fit on the Hallmark card. Let's back up and see, you know, what, what, is, what is he saying? You remember Jesus said, look, if you don't hate your father and your mother, your brother, your sister, and all those, if you don't hate your family more, it, 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 you can't follow me. Was Jesus saying, oh, you've got to go hate your mom and dad? No. He was saying, compared to the kind of devotion that I deserve, it's not as though I'm first on the list and they're a close second. It's not like I'm first on the list and they're a distant second. It's like I'm on the list and there is no other when it comes to loving Christ. That's the sense, that I think, in which, in which David is saying, I, I hate your enemies. Because there are people in your life who will try to pull you away from the love and the grace of God. You see, the world will tell you, yeah, that God thing is really important, but the most important problem you've got in your life is a busted pipe in the kitchen that you've got to fix. And if the world can convince you that it's more important to fix a busted pipe than to worship and glorify God, then the next thing the world is going to say, you know, your, your, your biggest problem is psychological and you need therapy. You really don't need God. And then you go to that. And then the world comes along and says, your really big problem is the fact you don't have enough money and that you don't have enough uh, friends or you don't have enough power or prestige or your house. Or, you know, take, take your pick. The world will point to something and say, you know, that's really more important than God is. And the world's going to say that. David said, Lord, they have no place in my life. They hate you. They're your enemy. I've returned the favor. I, I, I can't afford to let my life be touched by who they are. If I by being changed by who they are. That's what I mean. So, Lord, there's all these enemies going on, and do I not hate them? He's saying, do I not turn away from them entirely, completely, and I'm turning to you, Lord. Now, now that's, that's the context, I think, uh, gives us that interpretation. So he says, I, I count them my enemies. Then uh, verse 23 This is a cute verse, by the way. Get ready for this. 
You ready? Okay. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Wait a minute. Verse 1, he said, O Lord, you have searched me, and you do know me. Here he says, search me and know me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, you've searched my heart. You know who I am. You know what I'm thinking. You know where I'm going. You know what what I've been through. Lord, you've searched my heart. You know me. Do it again. Do it again. Search me again. Constantly know me. Constantly search my heart. Constantly be working in my midst so that I never take my eyes off this central fact that though I fly with wings to the morning or I travel to the uttermost parts of the sea, when I get there, I find you're already there. Search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. Then lead me in the way everlasting. Just, you know, wherever I am, you lead me out of it. You lead me through it. You lead, lead me in the midst of it. Lord, whatever it is, you never, never let go. You never leave me. You never desert me. You never lose me in the shuffle. And so in those moments when you're feeling, you know, like the, the world's caving in and the emotions are caving in, and the doubts are growing and growing, and uh, the presence of God seems more and more theoretical and less and less real. Understand that the Lord searches who you are, knows your thoughts, knows what you're going through, has the power to bring you through it, and will do so for his glory, that you might give eternal and everlasting praise in the courts of heaven, to the goodness of God as he brings you through. God knows, and he never lets go. He's there. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, indeed, this is too wonderful for us. All we can do is just repeat the scripture and understand the the majestic work of your Holy Spirit in the midst of it all to take words of Scripture and make it reality in our life. I thank you, Father, it's by grace. I thank you, Father, it's because of Jesus. I thank you, Father, it's because of the work of your Holy Spirit. And so this morning for the folks in this room, Father, I'm praying for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, the hearts especially that are being lived darkness that seems to have no day, or hearts that are grieving so deeply, it seems there will never be joy again. Father, I'm praying the work of your Holy Spirit would bring that joy that comes in the morning, and that the light of your presence would be made manifest. For that soul here today who doesn't know Christ, let this be the moment. Send your spirit to work in the heart, to bring about confession of faith For that brother and sister who's apart from you now, let this be a moment of rededication. Father, for all of us, let this be a time of praise and glory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.